Today's episode is brought to you by Luke Bagnall State Farm Insurance. Luke is not only a buddy of mine, but he's also got his own insurance agency in the area, and he's with us today. Luke, tell us a little bit about what you got going on over at State Farm. Thanks, Drew. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad I could finally get on your podcast with you. As simple as I can say it, we have a passion to help people in the area. Uh, My office helps people ensure what's most important to them, and we guide them through those decisions. You know, whether it be an aggravation of a fender bender or a devastation from losing a family member. We try to have fun at the office and, you know, get involved in the community. We know our customers like family and enjoy, we enjoy getting to uh, establish those relationships. I enjoy doing the same things you guys do. So in my spare time, I'm out on the mountain biking trails or I'm paddling on the local lakes. I'd love to get together with any of you guys or gals. Uh, Give me a call at 616-534-8608. Awesome, Luke. Thanks so much. So www.lukebagnall.com. I thought when I got to base camp, that would be my aha, you know, ta-da, jump in the air. And this sounds so cliche, but it wasn't about getting to base camp. It was the whole journey. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Hey folks, joining us today is native Grand Rapids woman, Ann Chamberlain. Ann is first and foremost a mother to four kids. She's the wife to Lou Chamberlain, the co-founder and current CEO to our West Michigan Whitecaps baseball team. She's also a two-time cancer survivor, and she's got an epic story to tell us about her life, some of her struggles, and a night spent at base camp on Mount Everest. Ann, we're so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Get us caught up to speed with uh, with who Ann Chamberlain is. I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, and I'm, I have an older brother and a younger brother. My father was an avid fly fisherman. And my mom was a nurse, and tennis was my thing. I played um, competitive tennis. Um, if you haven't heard, you will hear how competitive I am <laughs> still to this day. So I grew up playing tennis, and I was a lucky, a lucky enough gal to have a family cottage on the shores of Lake Michigan outside of Holland. Beautiful. Um, and I managed to get in the stream with my father and fly fish, which was also just great time with him. What streams were you primarily jumping into with, with your dad growing up? Was, was this on the banks of the Pier Marquette? The little town of Baldwin, there's a, a fly fishing club, um, men only still to this day, <laughs> called the Kinney Creek Club. And... Um, my father fished there and was allowed to bring um, his daughter and his wife um, whenever they wanted. And um, so that's where I fished with my dad. It was um, on the Pier Marquette, and then they also had some uh, lakes. There's a ton of streams. It's cool. just beautiful. And actually, I would end up getting a little frustrated with, with um, my, my fly. And so I would often put my rod on the banks and just wander around in the stream with my waders. And I found just as much joy in that as I did you know, trying to, trying to fish. So yeah, 
Okay, so tennis was always a big part of your upbringing. Um, did you play tennis competitively through uh, elementary and, and middle school, high school? And college. Or I went to a small level. school in Ohio called Kenyon College, small liberal arts school, and I um, played tennis for three years. Where'd you go to high school, Anne? I went to East Grand Rapids High School. Okay, so you um, grew up right here in, in Grand Rapids. Right here in town. Fantastic. So yeah, there's that competitive edge built in right away. We already get to see that. Yep. I, yeah, I make everything into a competition, which I don't think is truly healthy, but... Um, as I get older, it's it's not so bad. <laughs> it's just kind of the way you do life. That's that's kind of my makeup. Okay, so tell us um, the years following college. What uh, what took place during those those years? After college, I moved to New York City. Um, a lot of my friends were from the East Coast, so that seemed a natural place to go. And I worked for a large advertising agency called Saatchi and Saatchi, and I was actually in their sports marketing um, department or. Um, area and I was lucky enough to actually travel with the men's pro ski tour um, in the West and in the states, and that was really fun. And you know that's a great job to have as a as a newly graduated person. And um, spent ten years in New York, and then it had enough. And then I moved to Chicago and continued to work in the advertising business. Um, and then met my first husband in Chicago. So you were a gal who who appreciated the the hustle and bustle. You don't you don't shy away from big city life? I do now, but at that point in my life, I loved it. But right. I, as I got a little bit older, when I, by the time I left Manhattan, um, I was seeking weekends outside the city and realizing a, a green space was becoming more and more important to me. You found solace in, in the green spaces and sought the quiet and the peace from, uh, from what had become your, your world. The excitement of the city, the newness, you're young, you're exploring, um, you stay out late, you, you know, it's just all great. But as you get older, that wears off and you've done it, been there, done that. And um, that's how it worked for me. I still love going into cities, but I always love leaving them. Yeah. Um, the sensory overload exhausts me. Um, yeah. But I'm really glad I did it. Those were the years, what, 10 years out of, of post-graduation till, what, 15 years post-graduation? I was... 28. Okay. 28. Yeah. And met um, my first husband in Chicago, and I believe when I was 30. Got married. Did you have kids? Got married, and we okay. have uh, four daughters together. Four under five at one point. Oh, my word. Yeah. You were a busy woman. I was a very busy woman. I don't remember a whole lot of those years. Were you working? I was not working. I worked when my, my first daughter, Elizabeth, was born. I worked when she was an infant. And then I became pregnant with twins. And the twins were born when my oldest was 18 months old. So that was a handful, three in diapers. And then my youngest child, Louise, was born when the twins were four. You still married to your first husband or is that? I'm not. Um, that was a really tough period in my life. And I believe that also shaped who I am to, today. Um, yeah. My ex-husband, um, unbeknownst to me, was an alcoholic. Um, mm. And then when... I asked him to stop drinking. He began to abuse money. I realized one day that he hadn't paid any bills and our house was gone. My car was towed away. Um, he had borrowed money from friends and family, which he never repaid. And so I sought counseling from a, a Christian therapist because I didn't believe in divorce. I didn't get married to get divorced and was really struggling. Mm. And she advised me that I really needed to save my children and myself. and in part ways. So um, we, I filed for divorce and, um, and became a single parent of four children under the age of 15. Knowing a little bit about the cancer story, 
sounds like you've had some tests in life that have almost prepared you in a way for some of the biggest battles life can throw. Well, I, I, when I was a single parent of these four young daughters and their father was um, not helping financially or emotionally, he had pretty much um, checked out. I worked two and three jobs and I was so lucky because my parents said that they would help me and I decided in order to accept help from them, I had to show them that I was doing the best that I could do. It was a struggle, um, but I believe it, it's taught me some lessons and it's, it's taught my children some lessons, especially living in the communities that we live in where we are very lucky, our kids are very blessed with good homes and clothing and food and vacations and cars. And it, it, I hope they remember those, those days that we did struggle and um, I think it has shaped them in some way. So I look at that as a hidden blessing. Mm, that's neat. Yeah, that's good perspective. Tell me a little bit about kind of the transition from um, from that first divorce. Well, what I found really actually quite funny and interesting as well is being a single mom in a community where there aren't a lot of divorced people at that age. And what do you do? You're not invited to the Christmas parties. You're not included at, over for, to the dinner parties. And so, you know, you say to your one single friend that you know, let's go have dinner downtown. And um, uh, there's a, a community, a, kind of a cheers community, that you, I think, if you're single, is out there. And we found it. And um, <laughs> it. we all had, we had a group of maybe eight of us, and we were divorced, newly divorced, um, from every walk of life, male, female, and in this group of, of my Cheers friends, there was um, male m men and women, and I had never cut the lawn before, and I had to find somebody to help me start the mower, so I looked at my list, and I said, oh, I'll call him. Well, him, he's now my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he came over and showed me how to start the mower. The first bachelor to pull the string. Right, right. And I think that's probably the first time he had done it as well, and he, you know, he faked it. <laughs> but I proceeded to cut the lawn, and instead of going back and forth like you see people do, I was so mad at my position in life and being divorced and being left pretty much with not a car, not a house. Um, our house had been put in foreclosure, that I cut the lawn any which way I wanted and I had my headphones on and I zigzagged and I did circles and I you know what that was really um, freeing I was laughing and it must have looked kind of strange from, from the outside but. there's this inner rebellion inner rebellion being cut loose exactly yeah so and the gentleman who comes over and helps you start this lawnmower um, tell me his name his name is Lou and you and Lou hit it off did this uh, did this turn um, into a romantic relationship rather quickly, or did this unravel over the course of months and years? What, tell, tell me a little bit about how that kind of got started. Well, after he started my mower, I was like, hmm, okay. And he's, he and I laughed a lot, and I think laughing is so, so therapeutic, and I don't think people laugh enough. So we, we became friends, and um, we did things in town together. We went to some concerts, and... Um, we ended up dating for five years. Then he proposed. So we were married in October of 2012. We had planned a honeymoon uh, that was about two weeks later. Mm. 
and I wasn't feeling very well. I'd had kind of a bad stomach, but I, I ran five miles the day of our wedding. I wasn't bedridden. I just felt like I was coming down with something, but I had, um, my tummy hurt. So my doctor said, well, let's just do a little scan just to make sure there's nothing there. Well, I had cancer everywhere. So of course we canceled the honeymoon and um, here we are married. My four daughters are at home and his new wife is stage four cancer. So yeah, that was, um, that was a tough time. Unbelievable. Um, What an incredibly paradoxical space in time where you experience the highest of highs and then the worst of love. I never said why me, God, or I never was angry. But what I did say or think was, you know, come on. I've just, you know, really struggled and been a hardworking single mom. And finally, I, I meet this fabulous man that I adore and love. And and I'm thinking that, you know, the hard times at least are on the sidelines. And then this, mm. I was like, seriously? You finally hit your stride. I mean, really? You know, haven't I had enough challenges? But the hidden blessing is I was married and I had this wonderful man to help me through this and to be with my children. I wasn't a single mom, you know, I, I was married. So, you know, that's how I, I, I chose to look at it after yep. that. You get your PET scan, you get the bad news. They tell you it's it's head to toe, and this is serious. What yep. transpires? Well, the first thing, you know, I need a plan. Once I have a plan, no matter what kind of catastrophe I'm in, whether it's a divorce or financial problems, if I have a plan, I feel like I'm in charge and I, I'm feeling in control. And that's how Lou felt too. So we, I have a fabulous oncologist and he put together a plan, a very aggressive chemotherapy plan, which put me in the hospital for my chemo around the clock for 10 days. Then I would come home for a week or two and then I would go back in the hospital for chemo around the clock for 10 days. And this would happen for about six months. I had to confront my own mortality. And I remember being in the hospital and I said to my doctor, I said, am I going to die? And he said, I don't know, but you're going to leave today and I want you to go home and live. So that sort of set the tone for me. And I thought about dying a lot and I came to terms with it and I came comfortable with it. I didn't want to die, but I accepted my mortality. And the moment I did that, I felt free and I lived more openly and I believe that helped me get well. Yeah, live each day like it's your last. Right. How many people have actually dug into that? And how many, can you truly do that without having... Been close. uh, Exactly. I I don't know if that is actually um, doable unless you are very ill because I just don't think your, your mind can do that. We're not wired like that. We're not that. wired like that. And, and and that's why you hear people say that their cancer was a gift. So you beat that cancer. Did you when when did you finally learn that you had gone into remission, Anne? Actually I guess I could say I just hit remission. I've been five years out. Um, high five. Um, so as I was completing um, my treatment, um, I was communicating with a friend from, from Kenyon College and her name is Jenny. And Jenny um, was terminally ill. Um, she had uh, ovarian cancer, which, and she also had the BRCA gene, which is a deadly gene. Um, it starts with breast cancer. 
and she was dying. And I said, Jenny, what can I do to honor you? What would you like me to do? And I told her I was thinking of running this race in Grand Rapids. They had a 10K, which is six point something miles. There was a 25K, which is 15 and a half. And I said, I was thinking of doing the 10K and raising some money in your name. And she said, well, do the 25K. Don't be a wimp and do the 10K. And I was bald and I was skinny and I had, and I said, Jenny, and she goes, come on. So the Riverbank run is always over Mother's Day weekend in May. Mm -hmm. And it was the end of January. So I didn't have much time. And as I look back, it was really probably crazy. But I started raising money and um, I raised money for the American Cancer Society in Jenny's name. And Jenny died about a month before the race. And um, I ended up raising $15,000 for the American Cancer Society and completing the race. Um, and it was, it was really touching. And I, I tear up even talking about it now. Um, yeah. And I knew we, she, was act, she was dying. And we knew she wouldn't um, be on this earth that much longer. Yeah. But it gave me um, a real desire to, you know, make sure I completed that race. There was nothing that was going to stop me. Um, so I did. I completed the race, and um, I did start crying at the end. Um, but tears of joy. I, I felt um, proud that I had done it. Um, I was exhausted. But, and I know she was proud of me for doing that. So that was, that was big. That was, that was big for me. It... It made me feel like I was capable still after being um, so bedridden and so ill. I, I was alive and um, I had done something very physical that to me made me feel that I was still capable of, you know, the things, doing the things that I love to do, even though I had been so deathly ill. When you're going through treatment, you're actively doing something to stay well. When your treatment ends, it's kind of scary because you have to have faith and you have to let it be. It will be what it will be. You're always thinking, am I going to get sick again? Don't think like that. Be positive. Go run. Am I going to get sick again? I've got a headache. Oh my gosh, I've got this. You have to train your mind to let those voices stay in the distance. But I was really lucky that I was opening, open to listening to those voices because I found a lump in my neck. And I, I had a cold and I, you know, we all know that lymph nodes um, take, go to work when you're sick and they might get bigger. So I felt this lump in my neck. And so I told my doctor and he said, well, you've got a cold. And this is in the fall of 2014. So um, I had finished my treatment. I was clean for six months. And he finally said, you know what, if you still have it there, I better check it out. Guess what month it is? It's October. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh gosh, two years ago this month, I was sick. So I went to the doctor, long story short. He sent me to a uh, neck and throat specialist who biopsied it in his office. And um, turns out I had stage three um, neck and throat cancer. And we didn't know what it was. We knew it was cancer in my neck, but we didn't, he had to operate um, to find out the extent of it and where it started. So um, my 
tonsils were cancerous, and uh, squamous cell carcinoma, which is neck and throat cancer, spreads in um, order or in a line. So it started in my throat and it had progressed down my neck. So that means that it had, it had left the original spot and it was traveling down my neck. And if you don't catch it, it will end up in your lungs. So um, we believe that my body had been so um, compromised from the first cancer that my immune system was um, really shot, that this was the opening that this, this virus and these cells needed to, to show up. So it, it, it wasn't great. I was going to go through chemotherapy again and radiation and lose my hair. Did you have enough in the tank, did you think, at this point? I did. I had enough in the tank, and I was, at this point, felt pretty educated. For me, it makes me feel more in control. And every time my doctors would come into my hospital room, I would have my notebook with my questions, and that gave me some control because I had no control over what my body was going through. And the one thing that was new this time, um, however, was um, because it's in your throat um, and you swallow food, it presented a whole new challenge, a whole new um, chapter of, of unknowns, which meant I was going to get a feeding tube inserted in my stomach. I've heard that those are really difficult. Um, and, and people speak about feeding tubes and ventilation tubes as being some of the more, more uncomfortable processes of their hospital stays. Well, anything poking out of you that's not you, yeah. um, it, you know, it's just weird. All the bad memories coming right. back, come flooding right. back, right? But one of the funniest memories, which I always think that humor should be included, is when you um, have radiation to your throat and um, to that area, you lose your sense of taste. So if you don't taste it, you really don't want to eat it. But your, my mind hadn't caught up to that yet. So I would go to the grocery store and I would buy, you know, raspberry sorbet, chicken liver pate, chocolate. And then I'd come home and I couldn't taste it, so I couldn't eat it. And so finally my husband said, would you just stop buying groceries? You, you know, accept the, the fact that you can't eat it. <laughs> and so that was pretty funny. Hi everyone, this is your host, Drew DeVries. Hey, if you've been with us for a while, I just wanna say thanks for tuning in again. If it's your first time listening, then I'd like to extend a warm welcome to the Adventure Deficit community. We're happy to have you with us, and it's our goal for you to glean a little bit of entertainment education, and inspiration from today's story. Hey, after today's episode, please visit our website, www.adventuredeficit.com, where you'll find several ways to get involved. Today's episode will be featured on the main slider. Scroll down from there and click any previous episodes for access and show notes. In there, you can also subscribe to our direct links through iTunes, Google Play, and RSS feed. We're passionate about Adventure Deficit, and we're committed to delivering even more adventure stories and life lessons in 2018. We're also expanding our reach with product reviews, videos, and live events as well, but we can't do this without your financial support. You can help us out by subscribing, sharing, or even buying a t-shirt, which are available on the website for $20. If you're one of our listeners who might be interested in advertising with us, please go ahead and get in touch under the Connect tab. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. And talk to us uh, about 
what uh, what kind of kept you going during that uh, that second round of chemo or radiation? Well, I, I'm the kind of person I'm very goal driven. Yeah. Um, I don't just go out for a, a, a run and just say I'll run until I'm tired. I have to decide how far I'm going to go before I leave and where I'm going to go. And and so goals are important to me, and that's just how I'm wired. I've always had this huge interest in Mount Everest. Um, I know all the climbers. I know the history. I Google the mountain. I, you know, I, I, I'm just fascinated by it. I'm just, I, and I never wanted to climb Mount Everest, but the people that have and the culture there, I, I feel is very sacred, and I just wanted to see it. And I found this trip where you can trek to the base camp of Mount Everest and you can sleep there. Um, and it looked hard, but I thought, well, that's a goal. So I went to the Y the next day and I said to my trainer, so what do you think? I want to go. And she about flipped out. What did Lou think? Well, he looked at me and, and stunned. And of course, the first thing he said was, well, you have to have a budget, <laughs> which is really cute. So I put it all on in writing and... Um, put everything down that I would need and how much it would cost and, and the dates. And he said, I'm staying home, but you go. So I worked really, really hard with this trainer. I went to the Y with my hiking boots on. And oh, cool. Smart. I did uh, a lot of weight training, a, a lot of um, balancing, stability. And um, yeah, I, it, was, it, was, it was, but she made it fun. And I had that goal. That's neat. I wasn't just exercising to exercise. I was exercising to get to the base camp. Okay. And had you uh, already had some, some uh, backpacking or mountaineering experience, or did you have to go get all new gear and get, uh, get outfitted with, with all the proper equipment? I had done some backpacking when I was younger, okay. um, but nothing like this. But the, the really neat part is we had yaks, and the yaks carried our, our big duffel bags, so we just had day packs. And we had four Sherpa, and there were nine of us in the group um, from all different countries. You jump on a plane. You land in Kathmandu. And my favorite thing is, well, I love Bob Seger, but I think I'm going to Kathmandu. Yeah. 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 So. Um, and uh, who picks you up? Uh, one of the uh, workers from the trekking company okay. um, was out there with a sign. Okay. Uh, his English wasn't very good. He immediately blessed me with a... Um, a lovely uh, prayer scarf, which, you know, I start crying. I cry a lot. You still have. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, I still have. And um, we get in the car, and it's crazy. Kathmandu is wild. And um, he takes me to the hotel where I'm going to meet these eight strangers. What's the, what's the hustle and bustle like in Kathmandu? Your sensory overload. Okay. But it's the old school, and it's the it's the old world and the new world. You see Clashing, a rickshaw. Right? Yeah, you see a rickshaw, and then you see a, a motorcycle, and then you see, you know, uh, a poor person begging on the street that has no limbs, but yet they don't have prostheses, like prosthetics, like we do here in the States. You see, um, you know, banks, but then you see somebody giving a, a barber doing a haircut by the river. <laughs> you know, you see um, families sitting at the river as their loved ones are cremated in an open fire and it's 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 wonderful it, it's it's the most interesting fascinating place to go and the people are just lovely 
Okay, so one night in, in Kathmandu in the hotel? Two nights in the hotel okay. in Kathmandu. Um, then we all went back to the Kathmandu airport um, trying to uh, get on our plane to fly into a tiny town in the Himalayas called Lukla. And um, often the flags are, uh, the planes are grounded because of weather, which that happened to us. So we all pitched in and we took a helicopter into the mountains, which was like really cool. And when we landed and got out of the helicopter, that's really where the trail to Mount Everest Base Camp begins. And there's only one trail. And you knew you were there because all of a sudden you see the yaks, you know, the big ox with the bags on their backs and um, the people of the mountains carrying um, sides of houses on their backs. And, um, you know, that's how they get things up to their villages. They don't wow. have trucks. They don't have roads. They don't have cars. They have people and animals, and 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 that's it. It's there's nothing. There's not a word that can describe these, the Himalayas. But what really struck me is, why would anyone? I mean, getting to base camp took us nine days. It was it was hard. It was really hard. It nine was days on foot. On foot, and that's hiking all day, and it's up, and it's rocky. And then to have to get to base camp and then and then climb Mount Everest. I mean, I just it gave me so much respect, more respect oh, cool. for the people. But it also made me realize I was glad I I saw it because now I know I never want to climb Mount Everest, or not that I ever was going to. But you know, um, about four days into the journey, there's an area, and I'll, I'll say I'll use the word field, but a field um, a field of rock. So it's this huge expanse of rock, and it's actually a memorial area for many climbers and Sherpa that have died on the mountain. So there are monuments in this huge expanse, um, and it has the climber or the Sherpa's name on it, and there's prayer flags wrapped around it. And it's a, I mean, think of a football field and larger. It's this huge area. And when we reached that area, there were other trekkers there. It was totally dead quiet. The wind was blowing the prayer flags, and I got this sense that now I was on hallowed ground. I now was where Scott Fisher was. I was now on the same ground that all these people that I've read about and learned about had been. And um, that was when I really felt that I was there. Um, I thought when I got to base camp, that would be my aha you know, ta-da, jump in the air. But it wasn't, and I had to think about it. We got to base camp, and, and yeah, it's it's wild, it's cool. You feel like you're on the moon. But I'm like, okay, yeah, can we go now? I mean, you know, you're, you're tired, you're cold. And this sounds so cliche, but it wasn't about getting to base camp. It was the whole journey. It was the journey that started when I decided to do this. It was the, the journey training it was it was the decision the people the culture um it, it all counted and it counted just as much as putting my foot and and walking around base camp and i found that really interesting i i didn't expect that you would you would have imagined base camp to be more climactic exactly yeah. and more of the focal point and more of you know that's why i was going that's right. that was my goal to get to base camp that's 
you know, I didn't have this goal to, you know, play jump rope with the children, which I did. I didn't have this goal to, you know, um, do all the other things I did. But those were almost, they were just as important, which yeah. is sort of a metaphor for living, that it all counts. It's not about that vacation in a month. It's not about that trip in two weeks. It's not about that doctorate degree. It's not about when I'm 25. It's not about someday. It's about now. And it, it it's like little pebbles of these monuments and all these little pebbles put together create your life. And I wish more people could could live their lives like that and realize that you know what? Today counts. Um, we live in a culture today that heralds the hero shot. Social media is filled. Go through any platform of social media and it's filled with hero shots, right? Mm -hmm. The Everest shot, the base camp shot, mm -hmm. that vacation that you mentioned right. two weeks away. Yeah. And what you're saying is, yeah, those are, those are good things. But I'll tell you what also matters is a conversation with a complete stranger. Right. Or washing your dishes and, and listening to the sound of right. your children laughing and enjoying life. None of us know or have a guarantee for tomorrow. None of us do. Mm -hmm. And I believe too many people do not enjoy the now. And I think my children think I'm really crazy because I'll be driving and I'll say, oh my gosh, look at the cloud. It looks like a dog. And they're like, oh, mom. Or, you know, did you see that branch over there? You just have to open your eyes and, and, and just... Find something good in every single day because today counts. Cool. Um, tell us about any books that you've been reading. Do you have any uh, any recommendations for our community? If you're like me and, and like to read about Mount Everest and, and so forth, there's a book that I read while I was there, and it's called Chasing My Father's Soul. And one of the first Sherpa, the first Sherpa to um, summit Mount Everest was Tenzing Norgay. Tenzing Norgay has a son, and this is the book his son wrote. Um, Touching My Father's Soul is his journey to understand his father's drive. His father was always gone when he was a child, and he was always climbing. So his son, who is still living and uh, lives in Kathmandu, wrote this book about um, his climb to the summit of Mount Everest to chase and find his father's soul. And it, it was fabulous. It's, it was really neat. And he's still living in, in Kathmandu and um, carrying on um, some of the works that his father had started. Cool. Um, you had heard Anne mention sh the name of her, her current husband is Lou. And uh, Lou's last name is Chamberlain. And uh, he's got a unique, uh, unique story as well. He's the owner of the West Michigan Whitecaps. Um, they are together involved in um, philanthropic endeavors throughout our city. Uh, and Anne, I would love for you to just tell us about anything that you might have uh, on the back burner or anything that you've got on the front burner as far as uh, um, any not-for-profits that you're involved with or any sort of projects that you and Lou are involved in. Uh, Lou and his whole team over at the Whitecaps um, do such a great job with um, inner-city children and they have a foundation that they raise money for inner city baseball. And it's, it's really, really cool to see these young kids um, learn the sport that my husband loves and a lot of people love. And so um, that's one of his missions and, and the Whitecaps mission. 
I'm very involved with uh, Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital, and I started out um, doing volunteer work with disabled athletes, and I think I, I started my volunteer work with these athletes when I lived in New York City as a single gal, and I think I was afraid that if I ever was injured and became hurt, I would need somebody to encourage me. So um, I do um, a lot with Mary Freebed. I help with their wheelchair tennis program. And so cool. um, we've started an oncology rehabilitation program now at Mary Freebed. So um, I'm trying, we're trying to expand that. And I'm um, spearheading a pure, a, a pure, uh, like a mentoring group for um, cancer patients because I did not have a mentor. I did not have somebody that I could bounce questions off of. And um, I think that's really important. So I'm trying to help Mary Freebed uh, put that segment within their, their department. So I think those are our, our, our biggest things right now. Last time we were going to try to get together to do a recording, uh, you had to cancel on me because you had taken up a new hobby. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you got going on as far as uh, extracurricular time, Anne. All right, so I always wanted to see Mount Everest. That was the one thing. And the second thing I've always wanted to do was to learn how to fly an airplane. And so, you know, why not? So I am, I'm, I'm taking flying lessons out of the Sparta Airport, which is a small uh, little community outside of Grand Rapids. Um, it's got one strip, and I'm learning to fly a Cessna 172. And I've, um, I've been up in the air four or five times, so... Um, my husband said, you know, you can do this, but we are not buying an airplane. <laughs> and I said, I know. Remember, honey, it's about the journey. It's not about the end result, which, which I do believe is true. It's the learning. It's the process. Um, but then I said, don't the Whitecaps need a plane? <laughs> <laughs> we so appreciate you uh, carving out some time out of your, uh, your schedule to sit down with our community and uh, share your wonderful trip um, full of uh, trauma and heartbreak and in some cases, death, and then uh, this this rebirth that you've gained and this vigor for life, it's contagious. I would just like to encourage anybody that is having a bad day, having a bad week, having a bad year, to to remember there's always somebody else who's hurting a little bit more. And that helped me get through, it's kind of a, a funny way of looking at it, but you know, none of us get through life without hurt. None of us get through life without challenge, without trauma. That's life. You know, even though it looks like your neighbor has the perfect thing going on, well, no, they don't, you know. you. So if you can remember that and, and remember that everyone has challenges, it makes it a little easier to get through your own. There you have it, folks. We so appreciate your time, Anne. Um, a big thank you from the Adventure Deficit community as well. And uh, we are so excited to watch what you accomplish in, uh, in the, the brilliant years to come. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And if any of your listeners um, want information about um, the company that I went with um, in Nepal or have any questions about the trip, um, I would be happy um, to answer and give insight to um, anybody if they... Or, you know, if anyone out there's um, got some cancer struggles, um, I just think we all, we all need to be there for each other. So um, thank you for having me today.